Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. known fact about my guest today is a teenager. She skipped school, hopped on a bus to New York City, filled out an application for Juilliard in pencil, auditioned, got in, and very quickly became one of the most prolific dancers on Broadway and now is truly the most prolific choreographer on Broadway. And now she's a director too and a producer and just is one of the most exciting people I've been able to talk to. Welcome Lauren Lataro to the podcast. A-OK. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the choreographer extraordinaire Lauren Letaro. Lauren is the choreographer for Broadway's Mrs. Doubtfire, Almost Famous, The Publix, The Visitor, and Broadway Bound, The Outsiders, and Like Water for Chocolate. She also choreographed the Broadway and London productions of Waitress and La Traviata at the Met Opera. Lauren recently directed Candace Bushnell's one-woman show, Is There Still Sex in the City? Additional choreography includes La Liaison Dangerous, Waiting for Godot, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Night, Time and American Idiot, and many more. She directed Date Me at the West Side Theater, A Taste of Things to Come, in Chicago on Broadway and at the York. She herself has performed in 14 Broadway shows, maybe more. She holds a BFA from the Juilliard School, where she's also an adjunct professor, and she's the founder of an incredible organization, ArtAmmo.org, Artists Against Gun Violence. Welcome, Lauren. To the podcast. Hello, thank you. So happy to be here. It's rare that I've sort of seen everything that my guest has created. I've seen a lot, but it just so happens when theater opened up again, I just grabbed a ticket to everything and anything that I could see to support Broadway and off Broadway. And so I got to see The Visitor and I got to see the Candace Bushnell shell and I saw Doubtfire the minute before they announced it was closing for a minute and Waitress. So I just feel like I'm so full of your beautiful, beautiful movement right now. And it's just um, a moment for me to thank you for all of the inspiration that that came my way in, in such recent history and then over the years. So a lot of people that have been on this show are Juilliard students. You're my first dancer. Most of them are, are actors. And depending on their class and their their experiences are really varied. Was the idea always Broadway? I know you love to dance, but was it to perform on Broadway? I had two goals. My first goal was to dance in a few modern dance companies and travel around the world. And then my second goal was to uh, shift over to Broadway. And you did. 
I did, yes. And did that happen pretty quickly? It did because I danced with the Martha Graham company and work was at that time, just there wasn't that much work. So then I auditioned for Momix and I uh, got in, which was mind blowing for me. You know, I was obsessed with the company. And so for three years, I traveled around the world with Momix and they travel essentially 50 weeks a year and they're really booked up. Uh, so I got to go all over the world. I spent months in Italy and Africa and India and California and you name it. We went all over the place, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. And I, after the first year was thrilling. And then the second year you start going to the same places and it's exciting because you you have friendships all over the world and you start to have favorite restaurants that you go back to and little haunts and museums all over the world, the museums, you know, just the sightseeing yeah. as, a, as a 21 year old. And then the third year, it's like, and here we are again, you know, and here, you know, getting food poisoning in India again, getting, you know, homesick in Switzerland. It's, and then I just was like, I don't know. And then there's a few people in that company, God bless them who spent 25 years in that company. I, I know right. people who are still in that company now. Wow. wow. And yeah. And I just was looking and I'm like, I don't think this is for me. I'm not judging it. It's amazing. If you find a home that early that you want to stay in as an artist, but I just recognized by that third year that this not a place I saw myself long-term because I love to travel, but 50 weeks of traveling a year is, you know, it's hard to, have a relationship, you know, it's all of, all of the above. I miss my family. So I started auditioning for Broadway and I auditioned for a show called Swing. I was non-union. I did not get it. I auditioned eight times over the course of a few months. And on the eighth try, I got the job. Wow. And that was the beginning. And that was the beginning. Who was the director of Swing? Well, most ironically, it was Mr. Jerry Zaks who directed Doubtfire. <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. Yes. And so now you're a Broadway dancer and you're you're getting to live, or are you living in the city now? Are you back at home? Or do you have like a bunch of roommates? Like, what is that like? What does it look like at that time? I had a roommate, my friend from New Jersey, who was in med school. And the two of us lived in a one bedroom with a wall in the living room for the extra bedroom. Um. But back then we lived near Lincoln Center because it was a different time. You could afford yeah. it back. Yeah. So we were on the Upper West Side and we had a, it was a fun time. And then I met my first husband and um, got married very young. But um, it was Was fun he time. also a Broadway performer? No, he no. owned. Okay. Not even close. Yes. Wait, that got you up. He owned something? Is that what you're going to say? Graham Krispy Kreme. Uh, it was. Krispy Kreme was, he was a great guy, nice guy. So it was a fun time in my life. Yes. Bringing donuts to the theater. and <laughs> You know, we love our donuts. We love I, any food backstage so, yeah. so much. So yeah. you're doing show after show. I know you did moving out. I mean, that must've been an incredible thing to mix your love of like traditional dance with Twyla Tharp and then to be on Broadway at the same time. Can you talk, was that like a seminal moment for you for me it was the sixth broadway show i had done moving out and um working for twyla we had met at juilliard we worked a little bit of juilliard together on a project called the diabella project and then this changed everything for me 
And um, it was hard to, it, after that closed, I did a, another six Broadway shows, but it was sort of the beginning of the end. I would say moving out was the pinnacle of my dance career. And then I kept trying to recapture that feeling and it just was impossible. It felt like trying to grab Jell-O. Um, wow. And I was always choreographing for all of my career. Even at Juilliard, I was always choreographing. Even in high school, I was always choreographing. And I just started to spend more and more time in process and less time wanting to be on stage. And finally, I, I think it was how to succeed. I was just asked to come in as an emergency swing for somebody, you know, and I got in there and I helped them out. And I just remember like, peeling my eyelashes off after a show one night and being like I just I can't do this anymore <laughs> I just, it's just something in my DNA changed I'd gone through a divorce I was now single again and I just it's just it just the performance of it uh stopped becoming interesting to me mm -hmm. the creation of it started becoming more interesting to me and so if you imagine sort of you know the gas pedal and the and the brake and your your feet sort of switching positions as they do when we're driving stick shift right like we kind of pivot to this other thing how i don't know like what what gave you permission or was there a mentor or was there like a converging of events that were both lucky and you were ready for that allowed you to then move into this other lane Yes, although the transition took a lot harder than I expected it to. Okay. Hard to like demand being a choreographer. It's easy to demand being in a Broadway show where you can walk in, you put your heels on, you put your best leotard on and you dance the hell out of a combination. And in a way, it's undeniable if that if you're the right person for the job. It's mm -hmm. kind of kind of an easy process in the sense that it's but chore choreography is much more cerebral who knows what's good who's bad how do, how do they offer you a 14 million dollar Broadway show if you've never done one it sort of becomes this weird thing um for me it was Michael Mayer who I know you also know right so yes I'm in the back of a cab I'm in Guys and Dolls because of course I still had to perform because I needed mm -hmm. to make so I'm in Guys and Dolls at the time and the phone rings and I pick it up and he says Lauren this is Michael Mayer and I say, I'm Lauren Letaro. I think you mean Lauren Kennedy. I didn't know Michael at the time. And I thought Lauren Kennedy was a friend of mine who was a big Broadway actress at the time. I said, you've got the wrong Lauren. <laughs> he said, no, I'm calling you Lauren Letaro. I've been watching your choreography work. I've seen you. Yeah, people speak very highly of you. I need an associate choreographer for Bill T. Jones on Spring Awakening. And I think you're the person. And I said, I'm flattered, but I'm in the middle of Guys and Dolls Tech and I can't do it. So I had to pass on that. And then he called again with American Idiot and he said, you can't say no. You need to stop performing and start choreographing, honey. I mean, I didn't know the man. <laughs> Are you and serious? You can't say no to this one. You got to do it. So yeah. I, I said, yes. So I did American Idiot. And I, I love that show. I love that musical. Uh, for me. I turned into an adult during that experience. I was lucky enough to assist Stephen Hoggett, who just opened my mind to a whole nother universe of how to make theater. And so when you say that, just to put it, I, I want to keep going, but so Stephen Hoggett, you're working with him. What is it about his, the language he's using as a, as 
in, in that world that's sort of, when you say he opened my mind up to other things, what was different? I mean, that show was so unique in so many ways, but tell me what you mean by that. Well, I mean, I came from modern dancing. Pina Bausch was a teacher of mine at Juilliard. So it was something I loved already. Sure. Omex lives in that universe. But what Stephen and Frantic Assembly and Deviate, then the world that he studied in, the British physical theater world, they sort of invented physical theater, whereas they just sort of use text to choreograph and okay. use Michael Chekhov exercises to choreograph and different exercises that they developed to help choreograph. And they're more directorial. It's about language and about giving actors the space to find the movement based on a series of questions or, you know, uh, as opposed to going, now you put your right hand up and you stick out your left foot. So it's, it's, it's a much more interesting. So it's not following combinations uh, from the choreographer and, and, and sort of it, it's working directly with this performer and sort of, I mean, that's, you know, a, a rock musical and, and people who are hired to do those sort of musicals often either have an ability to move really well, but generally haven't studied dance for years and years and years as other musical theater performers might. So is that part of it, sort of finding ways to work with actors who move really well, who don't have a dance background? That's exactly right. Okay. And that's what you guys taught me how to do in a real way with a technique behind it, not just okay. working with actors and I can get them to be movers. It was, it's a real technique. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and Michael became not only a mentor, but a close friend. I mean, we're still very close. He officiated my wedding. Um, I'm remarried now with a child. And, Amazing. Uh, and he's married to a doctor. So you guys both understand what it is yes. to love doctors. Yeah. Um, and it just changed my life. Tom Hulse and Ira Pittleman were the lead producers on the show. Um, they gave me a shot. And they have been supporting me ever since. And I consider them family. And um, it just was one of those moments where it just stands out as it, it just, it just changed me. Wow. Wow. And so from there, from then on, did you not look back? Was that the end of performing in Broadway shows? The end. And, and I, I never have wanted to do it again. Never. Mm. Yeah. The end. Very satisfyingly so. So I want to talk about um, some of the specificities of the shows that I mentioned earlier, because at the same, I'd say within two weeks, I saw Doubtfire, maybe The Visitor had closed a couple of weeks prior, and Waitress again, and, and the, you know, I'd be hard pressed to like say what your love language is in dance because each of these things are so filled with love, but you are multilingual. I mean, there are such different languages and the kind of movement in each of those musicals. And there's such different musicals. Um, the Visitor, Tom McCarthy is an old friend of mine. So I knew that the, the film really well. And then to kind of see how it has been translated into a musical for the stage and and what that specific world was um I mean I've really been thinking like what is the through line that I can go like this is still a Lauren show because and I wonder if you can speak to that what what makes all three of these yours yet they are so unique and singular in in and how the movement is performed and, and the stories are told in that way. 
I, I, for me, it's just never about the style of dance and it's always about the text and it's always about the psychology and the circumstance of the people on stage. Mm. Really try and figure out what this person, how would this person on stage see the world? How would the world move to them? You know, um, and that's sort of what I'm most interested in. And um, I had I had a lot of fun on Doubtfire in the sense that I, I took a little bit of advantage of like being able to do dance breaks and having some fun with performative dance in a way that the other projects don't allow that kind of room for. Right. And it's that a was, comedy, it's a broad comedy. And so it, right. it, it earns all of that. Right. And in a way I kept listening to Jerry Zachs and listening to the writers and watching Rob in the room and going, well, this is the, the language of this show. The language of the show is broad and it's funny and it's absurd. So if, if the premise of the show is absurd, I mean, here's a divorced father pretending to be a grandmother to nanny these kids so that he could be close to them. It's just a farce. I wanted the dancing to be as silly. So I wasn't trying to be sophisticated in the dancing or I just was doing something really silly and fun. Well, it's incredibly successful. Um, since you and I had, you know, made this appointment to speak today, uh, Doubtfire is a show that has closed with the hope of coming back in a few months as a way, the, you know, Kevin McCollum, the producer, has talked about how he thinks this is a viable way to bring the show back and save some money in the next couple of months. Um, Waitress, I think, closed quickly. Um, or maybe you had a heads up about it. I don't know how, but you've had a lot of like birthing and loss very quickly. Um, I think the visitor ran its, its run as it was meant to. Off-Broadway is dealing with a not-for-profit theater, just has different demands. But emotionally, um, as a family, and you create these families, how how have you all dealt with this kind of very strange, unprecedented decision-making? Yeah, I mean, let's see. With Doubtfire, um, I, I learned about the shutdown probably two hours before the cast did. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin called me and he just said, this is what I wanna do. And I think it's going to work. And Todd Hames very generously is the reason why this could work as long as the unions collaborate with me we're coming back in March and it I, it was shocking only because um it was sold out all of December while we were performing but we had to take 10 shows off because of COVID and we lost a lot of money with that and then January and February just seemed like no one was buying tickets too so I think what Kevin did was was really intelligent it was a really smart bold move that no one had ever done before and I think it's going to work. So I have, mm -hmm. it was bittersweet. It was shocking to me, um, but I got to see the last show because you know, he gave us a week or two weeks notice. And then I think it will come back in March. And I much prefer this version of this story than if we had to close in three weeks, never to reopen on Broadway again. So yeah, I think that's the, the a very happy, I think it's as good as it can get in this moment for this show. Um, and I think once audiences come back, they're going to love it. I mean, yeah. families, families will love it. It's a show for families and groups and, you know, friends who become family. The Visitor, um, 
ran its course and it was a beautiful, I loved working with Dan Sullivan and Tom Kitt and I just loved the show. Uh, Waitress was a little heartbreaking in the sense that the show was closing on January 9th. So it's not that we lost that many weeks. I think we lost two and a half weeks. But what happened is everybody just started getting sick at the same time. And Sarah just emailed us and just said like, let's just have this conversation. Cause we started having the first conversation which was, oh, should we fly in so-and-so? Should we ask somebody who hadn't done it in a year to fly in and learn, relearn the show in three days and put them on <laughs> for the last two weeks, excuse me. And Sarah just said, is this really, should we really be doing this? You know, is it better to just sort of say gracefully goodnight for now, there's a tour going out and you know, sure. the show. And I think everyone thought that it that had the most grace to it rather than try and put everybody, not in jeopardy because no one was really sick but everyone was testing positive. So I don't wanna use that language, but the anxiety of finding replacements for two weeks and understudies running in and it just seemed all uh, not not quite worth it. And this seemed to have more grace to do it this way. But it was sad because the show closed down for a few days and then never reopened. Yeah, it's a strange, well, which is, it, it, it harkens back to the, you know, I was at a play at Manhattan Theater Club in on March 12th when the original shutdown happened and going back months later to get your stuff out or as you described the idea of like, there's my pad on, it's like a museum piece, like, there's my pad and pen on this table in the Doubtfire room. I mean, it is a very strange thing that's happened. And I, I do wanna just talk a little bit about the creation of the movement in Waitress because for anyone who's seen it in person or has had the luxury of you know watching a little on YouTube at home because they can't get to the theater, <clears throat> the, the, all of the movement around the life in the diner um, and how it syncs up in my non-choreographer language with the songs and the story. Um, can you just take us through a little TED talk about, I know it was created a while ago now, but the beauty of, of sort of the pouring of the coffee and the cups and all of that stuff. Um, Jesse Mueller was the original mm -hmm. cast member that this was built on. Um, can you talk just a little bit about, did that come out of rehearsal when people are kind of working with props? Was this something you came up with in a rehearsal studio by yourself? Like, it's gorgeous and satisfying and everybody knows it and loves it. So can you just walk me through that a little bit? Yes, I actually had to audition for the show as a choreographer. So I had to put oh. about bits of material together. Is that how it usually works? Sometimes, not, not often, but the, in this particular case, this was how it was working. No one could quite crack the movement of the show. Everyone mm. was a little about it. I kept reading the script. I watched the movie and I was like, how are you gonna do this? I mean, all these close-ups with this beautiful actress on film, you can't, close-ups, they don't, there's no such thing in theater. Mm. You know? And I read an article in the New York Times about the power of imagination and daydreaming and why you shouldn't stop yourself from daydreaming. And I, that's how I got it. It was like, oh, she's daydreaming. Oh, oh, we shouldn't worry about her baking. Who cares? Let's, 
let's put on stage what she's daydreaming about. And what she's daydreaming about is escaping. So there's all these action words that came out of the daydreams, right? Escaping, leaving, you know, there's all, you know. Um, and that's what we did. So it was like, she's not baking. She's dreaming about putting all of her valuable things in a suitcase and running out the door and never right. looking back. And so literally just to walk us through for, for people who just don't know what this process is, when you say, we know what an audition looks like for actors, um, is that you doing the dance for them? Do you film it? Do you walk them through it? What does that literally look like? It was me hiring 12 dancers and getting in a studio and going to the grocery store and my husband that I've never seen a bill higher for food. I just started going, well, what, let me get chocolate syrup and what can make eggs? Oh, orange juice and water can look like butter. And I literally just started grabbing food off the shelves, took everything, pots and pans from my house in a giant suitcase to rehearsal where we just sort of started figuring out like, what if we took the table away and she was just holding the ball and we're pouring things and everybody's giving her the ingredients to pour so she's never looking. She's just grabbing and dreaming and the thing is happening. You know how you do when you're daydreaming? You're still doing what you're supposed to be doing. Sure. You're, yeah. You're washing you're just, dishes, but looking out the window and, and you're right. So it's something like, else. How do you do that with an ensemble? They hand you the dishes. They turn the, they turn the water on. They hand you the towel to wash your hands. Well, that, that kind of stuff. So, and then you have the director and the and the creative team come watch these dancers that you've asked to do it. Yes. So I had ten days or one week or something in the studio to create twenty minutes, and then Sarah Bareilles, Jesse Nelson, Diane Paulus show up at this you know decided time with the producers. And the speaker blows. I have no music. And Diane Paulus's associate luckily ran to the office and got a speaker and came back. And it was crazy. It was like, oh my God, how did this happen? And then, you know, they they looked at it and they were like, I could see that they liked what I did. And they were like, thank you very much. We'll be in touch. So it was crazy. You know, it's just there's moments in in this business where you're just waiting, waiting and waiting. And um but I knew we were on something. I knew. And is that something you had done before for some of the other shows you've choreographed, that, that version of auditioning for it? I auditioned for Cinderella, the Broadway show, and did not get the job. Okay. Um, and Josh Rhodes got the job, so I was happy for him. But yeah, it's always a little weird. And it's like, uh, it's hard. You know, it's hard to sort of have an audition with 15, 20 minutes of material. And, you know, it's like an arranged marriage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of us know about or, or think they know about what auditioning for a big Broadway musical looks like because they've either seen a chorus line on stage or one of the movies of a chorus line. And what has always been extraordinary to me is this idea of tons of people dancing at once and then a choreographer and, and their associate picking people out. So even if they're in the back row, sometimes they get plucked out and get to continue forward. How much of when someone is auditioning for a big musical where they have dance calls like that, like what we call cattle calls in, in the world of acting, 
are, are you really able to see like all, like explain how that works, how someone in the back row can still be auditioning in earnest and being seen, or do dancers try to push to the front? Like, how does that work? Well, I think these days, most of the time you learn it in a big group like that. And then you do it in small groups of four. Okay. So that's not really what it looks like. Not really. Maybe not, 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 not so much anymore. Um, okay. When you say I, anymore, was that a thing? Like when you were I, first starting I, out, was it like that? I think it was like that in the seventies and eighties. I've been to a few auditions like that early in my career. I think equity actually changed the rules for exactly what you're saying. I think to make it fairer, I think there's a cap on how many dancers can be in a room. Now, I think it might be 30 or 40 people at a time. And then I always break them down into small groups of four and let them go four at a time. And during this pandemic where we're social distancing and we're worrying about so many things, have you actually figured out how to see people for future projects? How are you doing that? We're doing it by videotape, a lot of it. Um, I still prefer to go into a studio, but depending on people's, uh, how they feel, you, you put them on tape. They tape themselves and then you watch them. So who teaches them the choreography? Do you, is there something they look at and copy? Yeah, I'll okay. put my film or my assistant on film. We break it down. We do it once as it should be with the music. This is the goal. And then we break it down very slowly. We film it from the back. We film it from the front. We send them the music separately, you know, the whole thing. So they get a whole package um, to try and learn this in their living room. And then you have to be, you know, like you can't choreograph this giant traveling combination because it's like people live in studio apartments in New York yeah, City. Yeah. It's tricky, yeah. but we. It's working. It. Um, I got Almost Famous. What can you tell us about that? Oh, it's a blast. I can't wait. I mean, it's really, um, it's a beautiful musical. Tom Kitt's music inside of it is great. And it's, you know, drizzled with a lot of music, you know, and love from the seventies, but it's put together in a really interesting way. Uh, the cast is incredible. And the story is really one of freedom and uh, a time when there was such uh, promise and ease and uh, exploration. And we does did that a, have a, a home on Broadway yet, or is that just a, a hope and a plan? A hope and a plan, but I think hopefully the hope and the plan will reveal itself sooner rather than later. But it's wonderful. Lauren, you, right now, like when we hang up, what, how many things are you working on right now? Oh gosh, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, I'm trying to, um, I'm working with writers on doing an original musical about a single mom in New York City based on a true story. And I am hopefully working on The Outsiders and Almost Famous and a few other small things that are, you know, are boiling up. But that's, that's really, I am actually not really working on a show until February 21st again. So I'm off. So, so you have a minute and more daughter time. Daughter time, husband time. Family All right, time. before I let you go, is there a little known fact about you that you can share? I didn't tell anyone I was pregnant until I was eight and a half months pregnant in the business. No one knew. I covered it up with a big black schmata. <laughs> like in a sitcom walking around with a laundry basket down Broadway. <laughs> I was working on a show at eight months pregnant for Kevin McCollum, the producer. And he finally, with his face as bright red as a tomato, says to me, um, are you, um, are you, are you pregnant? <laughs> I'm literally like so pregnant. I'm like, you know, central casting pregnant. And, you know, 
So I don't know. I, mean, that, I just was, I just didn't want to tell anybody in this business of freelancing. Uh, it was too scary. Fascinating, right? That's incredible. Well, you had, you had that baby um, and you've given birth a million times since with such beautiful work. Lauren, thank you for being on the podcast. What an honor to talk with you today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. You're wonderful. Thank you. I just saw such a beautiful jewel of a play at the Atlantic Theatre Company in New York City. It's called English by the playwright Sanaz Tusi. Their profound new work and New York debut. This play is provocative and beautiful and really explores the idea of language. It takes place in an English classroom in Iran where four adult students are preparing for the TOEFL, which is the test of English as a foreign language. And whether they pass that test or not will influence the rest of their lives in really deep and profound ways. And the, 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 um, the mantra, English only, which the teacher shares with the class as they try to communicate deep truths in their newfound language, it is a stunning, stunning night of theater. It's at the Linda Gross Theater until March 13th, 2022. And I highly, highly recommend this play. Go to atlantictheater.org to find out more about the production and to get tickets. But I have to tell you, it just, it's beautiful. English at the Atlantic Theater Company. Go see it. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out. And I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's 
first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.